With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Amazing Avenue in Conversation. My name is Brian Salvatore, and joining me on the show today is Anthony DeComo. For those that don't know, Anthony has been a beat writer with the Mets regularly since 2011, but his relationship with the Mets goes back a little bit further than that to when he was an intern at MLB.com. We'll hear all about that and lots more. But Anthony is on the show not just because he's a beat reporter, but because he is the co-author of the new book, The Captain, A Memoir. Now, we already spoke to his co-author, David Wright, a few weeks ago, and so tonight we're going to hear from Anthony about how he went about with the book, his career as a beat writer, and how the 2020 season was from his perspective. Stay tuned. All right, so for folks who maybe are unfamiliar with your uh, work, how long have you been a beat writer for, and who have you written for, and what was your initial first impression of David Wright? Yeah, I remember distinctly. I was um, I came down straight from college as an intern in 2007. Uh, I started on the home opener in 2007, and uh, I remember distinctly. And I wrote this in the acknowledgments of the book. Uh, Marty Noble, who was the beat writer at the time for MLB.com, he was kind of going around the room and pointing out various lockers of various players and being like. Now, this guy's a good guy, and, and this guy you might want to stay away from, and this guy is kind of a dick. And uh, then he got to David's lock, and he was like, David is exactly what people say he is. He's 
uh, you know, as good of a guy as you can get. And I was like, well, that's good to know because at the time David was uh, you know, a top five player in baseball. He was a superstar. He was, had established himself and was continuing to establish himself as kind of the Mets version of, of Jeter, uh, that guy that not only a fan base could rally themselves around, but uh, the team itself could rally itself around that you knew was going to be the man for the Mets for probably a long time to come. So uh, that was kind of my first, um, you know, dealing with, with David as an intern. I remember introducing him, my, myself to him and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, uh, I got on the beat. I was around the Mets for the next few years. I got on the beat full-time in, in 2010. And, you know, I would say that's probably when my relationship with David picked up. And, you know, I think just as a reporter, especially as a beat reporter, so much of, so much of it is just kind of, kind of being there and gaining trust, building relationships over the course of not weeks, but years. And I think I did that with David, you know, we, we kind of developed a, a mutual respect over the years and yeah, so our relationship kind of grew and, you know, when it came time to, uh, for his career to end, uh, you know, we had that relationship in place over the course of a decade plus. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's why he trusted me to kind of do this project with him. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad he did because I, I like the way it turned out. I think it's a great story. I think for, for fans of the Mets, of David Wright, of baseball, it, you know, an inspiring story. It's an emotional story. It's all sorts of things. So I hope people enjoy it. And yeah, it was all kind of born out of a, a decade plus relationship that I've had with the guy. Yeah. You know, when I talked to David a few weeks ago, uh, he mentioned that you had come to him with this idea. And I was wondering if there were a handful of players that you feel comfortable enough about that if the situation was reversed, you know, I'm making this name up, but if you and Daniel Murphy were tight and Murphy retired, would you, you know, you've gone to him or was this a special relationship you had with just you and David? I think it was kind of a perfect storm of, you know, a, I had gotten along really well with David over the years. Um, and not that we never had disagreements, you know, we, we had, you know, things that, um, you know, that, that might've popped up over the years, but I think we both kind of went about our business in the same way. And that, like I said, we developed a relate, a, a mutual respect, um, all well knowing that maybe our agendas weren't completely the same. And, and so I think, you know, I had a, I had a better relationship with David than I had with probably most guys in the room. Um, but I think on top of that is you add in the fact that this is not just any guy in the room. This is David Wright. This is, as I mentioned before, you know, the guy for this franchise, one of the all time greats for this franchise, one of, you know, the better players, one of the best players to come through New York in this generation. And, so, yeah, I mean, you could throw out any number of guys over the years that I've had, of Mets players over the years that I've had really good relationships with. Uh, but most of them out there are not, you know, of that caliber where people would be wanting to read a 360-page book about them. Right. Uh, it's just a, a confluence of what David was, how much he meant, uh, really a, a career arc that lent itself to a book and that it was it, it kind of had its ups and downs and it had kind of its climax and um, – you know, some drama in there and all that sorts of things. So when you combine all of that and what he meant to the franchise with the fact that I did have that relationship with him, I think that's, that's what made this project work. Sure, sure. Now, obviously, you spend a lot of time with, with players when you're on the beat. 
and you learn a little bit about them. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about David afterwards? You know, something you wouldn't have necessarily inferred from all the time you spent with him on the beat. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I thought some of the most interesting things for, for me doing the book were kind of the childhood years. Uh, you know, I, it's been written a ton about how David grew up in, in the Tidewater region of Virginia alongside some very good uh, baseball players. They had, I think, eight first round draft picks come out of that area in a very short amount of time. And, you know, that was not, this was not Texas or Arizona or California where you would expect it. It was kind of a place that hadn't developed a lot of baseball players. And all of a sudden, all at once, it was David, it was Ryan Zimmerman, it was Michael Kadair and the Upton brothers and, and a bunch of others. And so I think kind of digging in probably deeper than anyone has before in terms of, you know, what he did as a kid that, that it wasn't necessarily an accident that all these great players came out of that area at the same time. There were some really important influences in that area that, that helped make it happen. So I think that stuff was really, really cool because I didn't know about a lot of it before. Um, whereas, you know, the stuff that happened on the field, obviously I had seen, I had covered a lot of it and getting his perspective on it was cool and different, but you, you, you genuinely, you generally know that story. Um, so the early life stuff was really, really cool. And then some of the behind the scenes clubhouse stuff was cool. Like I, you know, I, I know David, so I, I knew his sense of humor. You know, I didn't know, and this is just kind of a funny small part of the book, but uh, you know, I didn't know what a kind of legendary prank prankster he was in mm -hmm. the clubhouse for many, many years. And so like stuff like that and kind of getting stories from various teammates and, and uh, other people who are around the team over you know the course of a decade and, and kind of reliving some of the funny things that, that he's done over the years and how people have gotten him back to is um, what was, was pretty funny. You just get things from different angles than you do covering games normally as a reporter. Yeah. Now, you know, as, as a beat reporter now for, for quite some time, obviously it's, it's important for you to build relationship with players just so that you can both do your jobs, right? Um, what was it mm -hmm. about David as a player that made him such a pleasure to cover from a beat perspective? I think he was, you know, it's important, especially in New York, and people think this is cliche and overrated, but it's really not. Uh, it's important in New York when you're that guy and you're the face of the team to kind of be a stand-up uh, player, an individual. And, you know, you saw it for many, many years on the other side of town, Derek Jeter, and he was the face and he was always there. And he was, you know, boring, <laughs> for lack of a better word. He, he was a superstar athlete and a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest of all time. Um and he did everything kind of the right way. He never got in trouble off the field and this and that. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily all that interesting. And I think David did a really good job as a player of kind of taking most of those elements. And he was also a really, really good player. Had some Hall of Fame caliber years. Uh, could be very boring and bland when he wanted to. And he's the first to admit it. But he, especially as his career went on, he, I think, was just a little – he was – more honest and forthcoming than you would expect and not in a way that would ever get him in trouble or ever create controversy or ever have him, you know, worried about what was in the newspaper the next day because he didn't do anything wrong ever, but he was very honest about his own uh, vulnerabilities and, and about the Mets failures uh, because you know, that's obviously a big, a big thing throughout his career is that he wasn't able to achieve everything that he wanted to achieve. So I think, um, you know, having that total package of a guy that's willing to be honest and open and forthcoming 
with you is, is really good for those of us who cover the team. And he was always so well-spoken and, you know, on top of it all, he was the best player on the team for most of those years. So it was, um, it, it was, it was easy to cover him in, in that way. And I always appreciated, I appreciated how much emphasis he put on, um, on making sure that, you know, on respecting the media, on respecting baseball writers and what we have to do uh, in that our job is important and always kind of making time and, and doing that sort of things. Cause not everyone does. And certainly players of that caliber often don't, but he did and he did it above and beyond for throughout his entire career. Now, for those who don't know, what what's your baseball history? Did you grow up as a rabid baseball fan? Are you a writer first and a fan second? You know, how did you come to being a uh, a baseball writer? Yeah, I'd say mine was kind of the kind of the typical story in that I grew up a, a rabid baseball fan, as you said. Um, you know, I was actually born on Long Island. I moved to Massachusetts when I was eight years old. My family was all uh, really big baseball fans. Uh, really big Yankee fan, so I kind of grew up a Yankee fan in Massachusetts. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> which was which was which was interesting. You know, it wasn't that bad at that time. It was it was the mid '90s, and the Yankees were winning every year, so it was uh, there weren't many comebacks people could could make to on the playground at that time. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, I mean, I loved the game, and then the older I got, and the more I sort of started to understand it, and you know, I always have an image in my head of every single morning before school, I would come downstairs, I would eat breakfast and I would spread out the Boston Globe on the kitchen table and read the sports section cover to cover. And I think that's probably the start of what got me interested in this sort of thing. I would see, you know, Bob Ryan and Dan Shaughnessy and, uh, you know, later on Michael Holly and, and Jackie McMullen and all these like world-class writers, reporters, columnists, uh, you know, writing about the Red Sox, writing about the Patriots and the Bruins and the Celtics. And, thinking to myself, this is really cool. And probably not even realizing that, you know, as I'm reading this cover to cover every year, I'm kind of soaking in through maybe a little bit of osmosis, you know, what it takes to, to do this sort of thing. It certainly instilled the love of it in me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, you know, kind of the typical story continues. I went to, you know, work editor of my high school newspaper, went to college, you know, became very, very involved with the paper there, started getting internships at, at various places around, um, around Boston. And then I wound up getting an internship with MLB.com with, with 2007. And that's, that's when I met uh, David. That's when I started covering the Mets and, and the rest is kind of history. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So as somebody who's been, I mean, I've been a Mets fan 
you know, uh, for a very, very long time. But I have not seen nearly as many in-person games as you likely have over your years covering the beat. What is it about... What is it about the Mets that, to you, makes them special? Because I always felt like when I would go to, whether it was Shea Stadium or City Field, there was just an attitude about the Mets and their fans that was a little bit different than anywhere else. Did you Do you pick up on that? And if so, how would you describe like the vibe around a Mets game? So I think, you know, it's an interesting question. I think when the Mets have gotten, uh, you know, themselves into – Clumsy phrase. When they've gotten themselves into trouble over the years, it's because they, you know, they act like they want to be the Yankees, whether it's from a marketing perspective or anything else. Whereas one of the greatest selling points of the Mets is that they're definitively not the Yankees. <laughs> the Yankees are so buttoned up and, and they're so, uh, you know, obviously they do a lot of things well. They've, they've won more championships than anyone else. Um, but they're not fun like the Mets are fun at their best. And you know, when I've covered the team, when the Mets were really, really good in 2007, in 2015, I, the buzz does feel different because it's not this expectation that we're supposed to win and we need to win and we need to, you know, protect the shield of, of the of the NY and the Yankee Blue. No, it, it, it's, this is awesome. The Mets are in it. The Mets are good. This is, this is just a really cool thing. I think it's kind of a pure baseball experience. And it, it's maybe something that you can only get with, with you know, the Mets have such a unique history in that it's largely defined by failure. And yet they've got arguably the most improbable championship of any professional sporting team ever in, in 69. Uh, they've got this amazing juggernaut of a team in 86. And there's these little spikes throughout their history where they go from being that Mets laughing stock to being really, really good. And it's not like the Yankees where they're really, really good every year. And it's not like the Cubs where they're really, really bad every year. Uh, throughout their history it, it's it's this kind of fun little thing where they take you by surprise sometimes and I think um, you know I think the fan base reflects that because it's a fan base that always has hope sometimes irrational and so <laughs> um, but it's uh, it, it's really cool and I, I do think it's it's you know one of the best every every player on every team says this about their own fans but I do think that the Mets fans are just based on what I see on on not just social media, but interactions with people at the ballpark and interactions when I, when I talk to people, it's, it's a really cool fan base. I, you see people come to New York from other places and adopt the Mets as their team. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's kind of a cool melting pot of people in that way. But yeah, I, I have yet to hear a person tell me that Yankee stadium is a better place to watch a baseball game than city <laughs> field. Even my own parents who grew up rabid Yankee fans much prefer coming to city field to watch games. It's, it's friendlier, it's more accessible, it's all those things. And I think, um, you know, that's part of what uh, what makes that Mets fan experience cool. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I grew up a, a Mets fan in a house. My dad was a New York Giants fan so from back in the day. So I he was rooting for a team 3,000 miles away, and I was rooting for the Mets. And my brother kind of rooted for everybody. He just liked watching baseball. But all my friends were Yankee fans. And as I've gotten older, all my Yankee fan friends have started asking me, like, hey, let's go to a Mets game together. And I say, well, you don't want to go to the Yankee game? And they're like, no, no, let's go to City Field. City Field's a much better place to watch a baseball game. And it's amazing how that's shifted because in the 90s when I was a teenager, you couldn't give away tickets to, to Shea Stadium. You know, it, it was it was really very different. Um, but like you yeah. said, I, I think that's the way that, that, the Mets, that the Mets and City Field are currently seen as just a much more accessible, fun place to be. 
Um, so I want to talk to you about this past season. You know, this was a bizarre season for all of us. Uh, you and I actually met down in Port St. Lucie earlier this year. So we got to see a little bit of live baseball, which I am very thankful for because God knows when I'll be able to see another game in person. But what was it like for you covering the team this year? Were you were you staying in New York? Were you with the team, or were you doing everything remotely? I so I you know when um when everything hit the fan so to speak back in March I was in Florida and you know it's funny thinking back and I've had conversations about this with people recently but thinking back on on that time it was you know things shut down very quickly and I remember not knowing what to do. And I certainly wasn't alone. None of the other beat writers knew what to do. None of, um, you know, we had group chats with other MLB.com writers who were stationed in Florida, Arizona. Should we stay? Should we go home? Uh, you know, wound up riding it out in Florida for a couple of days because the thought was, you know, maybe this will start back up. It seems so foolish now when you look back and think about it. But that was the, nobody realized at the time, right. you know, how, how serious this was. So wound up flying home. I think it was on you know the following Tuesday, and New York City went into lockdown a day later. And yeah, haven't haven't left you know Queens where I live since. Um, it's uh, it's it was an interesting season to cover for sure. I covered um, you know mo- almost all the home games from City Field, which was nice because it's just so much easier and better as a reporter to get a. A, that firsthand look at the game. And even though, you know, all of our access this year was remote on Zoom, uh, doing that from the press box at City Field, uh, you know, it doesn't get you the same level of team coverage as being in the clubhouse and building relationships and, and doing all that thing, all of those things do. But um, it, just being in that atmosphere of a live baseball game, I think is so much better and so much, uh, you know, more conducive to good coverage. So, Covered the home games from City Field, covered the road games from home. Uh, we didn't do any traveling this year, which, um, you know, for obvious reasons. And, and that took some getting used to. But, but you know, I, we did the best of what we had. And I think, you know, it was, um, it, was a, it was a disappointing year for the Mets. What else can you say about it? I think, you know, on the eve of the season when Major League Baseball announced that they would be expanding to eight playoff teams per league, it seemed like the Mets were the big winners in that, you know, going yeah. from a team that, was probably on the outside of that bubble of five playoff teams looking in to a team that it was almost hard to envision them not being one of the eight best teams in the National League. Uh, But lo and behold, they weren't. They had a million things go wrong. They didn't play to their potential. And so it goes again. Um, So it was a weird season in a lot of ways. and, And I would say the performance on the field was one of those things that I would call pretty unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you got to watch it pretty closely do you have any sense for how uh, Luis Rojas did as his first year as Mets manager? You know, obviously his job security is is in jeopardy, not just because he had a losing season, but also with new ownership. We just don't know. But how do you think that Luis did with his first season? You know, I, I think he did well, actually. And I, I, I know that's probably not what a lot of Mets fans want to hear because the team didn't win. And when that happens, people want instant change. But, you know, I do think... I've known Louis Rojas since, gosh, I don't even know, 2000, 2009. To, I've known him for at least 10 years um, just from him being around in Port St. Lucie and, and you know, in his various roles as a minor league manager. And he's a professional dude. He works harder than just about anyone. And 
you know, did he did he make mistakes this year? Of course, yes, he made he made mistakes. Uh, certainly, some of the in-game things you can quibble with, uh, and this and that. But he was also, if you look at a big picture, he was thrust into kind of an unfair situation, uh, being named manager with about what two weeks left before spring training. Uh, you know, no sooner do you get down there than all of a sudden you're dealing with these unprecedented coronavirus protocols and changes, and you're trying to play a season through all of this as a rookie manager, you know, it, it certainly wasn't easy. And, and I think you put all of that on top of the growing pains of just being a rookie manager in general. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was a tough spot for, for Louis Rojas to be in. So I, I think it would be unfair to him to kind of cut bait now, uh, especially when you consider that this team had a lot of problems and, and how many of them can you draw the route to that were because of Louis Rojas? I think most of what went wrong for this team was due to, either things out of the team's control, whether that was, you know, an injury to Noah Syndergaard that knocked him out for the year, Marcus Stroman opting out, uh, so many other things like that, or probably a bigger issue, just kind of the roster building in, in general, um, in terms of that they did not have the starting pitching depth that they thought they had, uh, you know, when things went wrong, they kind of spiraled in that place, um, you know. So yeah. It's tough for me to pin the blame on Louis Rojas, and, and that being the case, it's tough for me to say that he doesn't deserve a, a second chance. I would be curious and interested to see what he does, given maybe a fairer shot, you know, at at a winning team. Yeah, I, I think that he he did about as well as you could expect. I mean, when I met him down at spring training, he had only been there a couple of weeks by the time I got there, and he was walking around not like he owned the place in a negative way. Like, he belonged there. He was confident, and he was professional, and he was friendly, and everybody I talked to just said, he's going to be great. He's, he's going to be fantastic. So I hope he gets another year at least to, uh, to, to prove that. And uh, my last question for you is, you know, the entire time you've covered the Mets, the entire time I've been a Mets fan, really, the Wilpons have owned the team, and that looks like that it will be ending in a couple of weeks. So how do you think new ownership will change what the Mets are? Do you think it'll just be, you know, better access to funds, better analytics, or do you think there will be a sort of discernible on-field in city field vibe change to the Mets without the Wilpons there. Well, I think you might get that little, a little bit of a bump of that right away, just because of, you know, there's look, you can't sugarcoat it. There's a, there's a significant portion of the fan base that has wanted this for a long time. So, yes. um, you know, I think people are, are excited about the ownership change. I think they're excited about what it could bring. Now, obviously this is very much a, what have you done lately for me town? So it's going to depend in large part, upon how Steve Cohen performs as an owner. And, you know, we'll see because I've never met Steve Cohen. All I know is, is all that you guys know, which is that he's a very rich man who's had a lot of success in business. Uh, it seems like he's obviously a very savvy guy in terms of uh, what he's able to do, especially with, as you mentioned, analytics is a big thing. And you're seeing that in some of the coverage now that, you know, he's one of the first things you could do is beef up that stuff. And, and I think that's the important thing is you know there's this thought that steve cohen's going to come in and just immediately clean house and sign gt jt real muto and sign trevor bauer and sign george springer and buy up every single player in baseball and turn over the roster and the mets are going to be a 110 win team next year and, and look like maybe he comes in like a hurricane and does some of that stuff but 
what you should want as a Mets fan is him investing heavily in the infrastructure of this thing. And that means analytics, that means scouting and development. Uh, that means all of those front office areas that, you know, you might not see as a fan on a day-to-day basis at the field. But I think when you look at some of the teams that have been most successful in baseball, both big market teams and small market teams, um, you know, the Rays are as much an example of this as the Dodgers. Uh, it's where they invest. And maybe the Rays don't have a $200 million payroll, but they invest in some of those behind-the-scenes places where it matters, and they invest heavily in those places. Uh, The Dodgers do have a giant payroll, uh, but that's not the reason why they're there every single year because you see other teams around the league trying to do that. The Red Sox come to mind, and they just just can't sustain it. What the Dodgers do so well is they have this infrastructure in place of, of scouting, of player development. I mean, they hit on their draft picks. Their analytics are great. They make great trades. They make great free agent signings. That doesn't happen be just because you have a ton of money and it doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you've got a strong foundation. You've got the right people in place. And if Steve Cohen is capable of doing that both financially and, and you know, intelligently with the Mets, then that's going to be so much more impactful long-term than anything he does in terms of player acquisitions this offseason. Absolutely. And I think that bringing Sandy Alderson back is something that maybe Mets fans aren't so happy about that because they may not have great memories of some of Alderson's years. But I think it's fair to say there are a few smarter guys in baseball than Sandy Alderson. And I think giving Alderson a bigger pay, a bigger you know checkbook to work with and more availability of analytics, it has me as a Mets fan excited. And I don't know if that's if that's just the shiny new thing in my life, you know, that I get excited about, or if that's legitimately reason to get excited. Yeah. I see it as Sandy Alderson coming in to do the job that he thought he was being hired to do the first time around. You know, the, the famous quote, I believe it was Paul D. Podesta when, when Sandy hired him back in, in 2011, 2010, 2011. And when he came on in his introductory press conference, he said, this is, this is money ball with money, <laughs> but it didn't work out that way for, no. for Madoff and, and, for all those reasons, the Mets didn't have the money that they thought they would, and they had to scrimp and do things different ways. And, you know, it, it didn't, it worked out to a certain extent in that, you know, they hit on some draft picks, they made it to the World Series in 2015, but they weren't able to build that sustained winner, which is kind of what I was talking about in the previous answer. Right. So uh, I will be interested to see what Sandy is able to do now that he will theoretically have money. And I will be very interested to see who he hires as that kind of chief baseball executive underneath him, that that GM figure underneath him. Um, Because if all goes well, that's probably the guy who will, you know, one day replace Sandy Ellis. And I can't imagine Sandy wanting to do this forever, but he's a very competitive guy. He's a very intelligent guy. As you mentioned, I know he burns to kind of win one here with the Mets because it's something that he was not able to do the first time. So it's a, it's a super interesting scenario i think despite the failures of you know the past decade i think people are very excited to have sandy back because mets fans understand how good of a baseball man this is and we'll see where it goes from here there's a lot of things we still don't know there's a lot of things we'll find out over the next month or two um but it's an exciting time if you're a mets fan because it does seem like real tangible change is on the horizon absolutely now, before I let you go, what's something you're into that's not baseball? What's what's a passion you hold that isn't baseball related? Um, it's a good question. I'm a big. I'm a. I, I love playing poker. I've, I've played a lot of it during the pandemic. 
um, because there ain't much else to do. So I felt like I was back in college sometimes playing online poker with, <laughs> at night when there was nothing to do. Um, but, you know, I love traveling. Uh, well, at least in normal times, I love traveling. I uh, can't really do that so much now, but, uh, you know, uh, those are kind of some passions for me. And, um, yeah, anything outdoors, anything active, I love doing as well. So, uh, you know, pretty typical guy, but I, but I certainly um, like that sort of stuff. And uh, where can folks find you online and remind them the name of the book and where they can grab it? Yes, it's The Captain, it's David Wright and Anthony DiComo. Uh, you can buy that at any bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, always encourage people to, to uh, you know, go to their local bookstores if they can, if they support their local bookstores. Um, and if you need any links or anything like that, it's, I've got it all on Twitter, at Anthony DiComo. D-I-C-O-M-O is my last name. So I, I appreciate all the support of Mets fans who have already bought the book. I know David does as well. I know he's psyched about how well it seems to be selling, um, you know, because, you know, it's a cool story. I, I think for not just Mets fans, but baseball fans in general, I think uh, the guy's career was very interesting and very dramatic and very cool and um, made for a good book. So I hope people pick it up and enjoy it. Yeah. As somebody who was four years old, the last time the Mets won a World Series, David Wright seemed like the best hope for us to get there for most of my adult baseball fandom. And uh, it's heartbreaking for me that we never got to win, that the team never got to win one with him on the team. But, you know, I, I think he is hands down the the Mets player that people will think about for the first two decades of the 21st century. So, Anthony, thank you so much. The book is great. Um, and we should be, uh, we should hopefully be seeing you in Port St. Lucie next year, all things going the way we hope they will, but who the hell knows, man? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I I sure hope so, too. I sure hope so, too. I wish I had an answer for you, but I sure hope so. That's all I can say. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening to Amazing Avenue and Conversation. We truly appreciate it. Go pick up The Captain, a memoir right now wherever books are sold. Follow Anthony's devi- uh, advice and try and find a local bookseller to buy it from. That is excellent, excellent advice. As always, you can find this on all the Amazing Avenue podcasts at AmazingAvenue.com, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get podca- podcasts, you can find us more or less. You can follow the site on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian Needs an App. Anthony is at Anthony Tacomo. And until next time, let's go Mets. Thank you.